Father, let the text lead us to confess sins. Let us flee from the sins we confess. We lie to ourselves about our sin. Instead of killing it, we cover it up. We pacify it. We pet it. We hide it. We feed it. We need a stern slap in our soul's face. Something to awaken us to the seriousness of our offense. We don't hate our sin, but we want to. We want to despise it. We want it to repulse us. We want to strangle it. But it seems we lack the ability. We lack the want to. We lack the fortitude. Shall we continue in sin? God forbid. May we find the loveliness of Christ far surpasses the lavishness of sin. You didn't bring us out to leave us alone. You've given us your spirit and your word. We open one now and we call upon the other. God, show us from this text the effects of our sin and the effectual love of Christ toward us in our sin. We need the gospel and we need it plainly. We need it powerfully. We need it persistently. Grant us, dear Lord, a gospel glimpse this day. This is our corporate plea. Amen. A new king, a new capital. 2 Samuel 5. <laughs> this text just happens to divide nicely into three divisions. Isn't it unusual how that always seems to happen? <laughs> when I first became a Christian and heard God's word taught, I was stunned that each passage broke down into three points. This, of course, is how we are conditioned to learn. It's not harmful. It's merely hooks on which we can hang information. Here's what I have for you today. The text broken down into three movements. The text brought home with three applications. The text broken down into three movements. The text brought home with three applications. Let's begin with the first movement. The king is crowned. Inauguration day has arrived. Maybe I should say the inauguration days have arrived. This is going to be a three-day event. There are over 340,000 people present according to the parallel account in 1 Chronicles. This crowd would fill up Nissan Stadium in Nashville five times. This is more than double the population of Clarksville and ten times the population of Hopkinsville. There are a lot of people showing up for this crowning ceremony. We've waited 17 sermons in 1 Samuel and five sermons in 2 Samuel for this very day, the crowning of King David. Verse 1. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. These 340,000 people aren't gathering at a football stadium. 
they gather at a rural backwater town, Hebron, David's home base for the past seven years. He has a little house there. Suddenly, the backwater town is, is flooded with visitors. The streets are packed. The stores are selling out of goods. There are no more little Debbie cakes left on the shelves. All the drink coolers are empty. This little town has never seen a crowd this big. They arrive outside of David's little shack looking like one big, large mob. As far as the eye can see, there's a sea of people. David walks outside the house and representatives of the 11 tribes symbolically lay down their swords at David's feet. And then in unison, the 340,000 people chant, we are your bone and flesh. Deuteronomy 17 revealed that the king of Israel had to come from the right lineage. He couldn't be a foreigner. But this is more than saying we all come from, they all come from the same genetic material. This is more than biological kinship. They are saying we are all Abraham's seed. We are the people of God. These 340,000 people from the 11 tribes of Israel had fought against David for years. Why lay down your swords now? It's because it's finally clear to them. David is their king. You were for us even when we were against you. You are our king. Verse 2. In times past, when Saul was king over us, this crowd is continuing to speak. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. David, even when, even when Saul was king over us, it was you who killed Goliath and saved us from becoming finger food for those giants. You were doing the job of king before you held the office. When Saul was our king, David, you were our savior. Church, David has the right genes, our bone and flesh. He has the right track record. He delivered them in the past. Then he has the right approval. Look at verse 2b. And the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel. And you shall be prince over Israel. David has the right approval. Well, what is that? The Lord said, you will be shepherd of my people. Now, he said that years ago, over, over 20 years ago. God here calls his, his people sheep and calls David their shepherd. David knew how to shepherd. He was a shepherd boy. Now he'll be a shepherd king. A shepherd feeds his people in times of rest. A prince, king, protects his people in times of war. David was predestined to do both. He'll be Israel's second king, but he'll be Israel's first shepherd king. They come with banners to Hebron, banners that read, Be our king! And David welcomes them. Because they come in repentance and belief. Repentance for not following him sooner. And belief that he is God's chosen king. 
This is almost like a mass conversion scene, like an Old Testament Pentecost. For the first time, they see David as their king, and for the first time, they see David as their savior. Verse 3. So all the elders, elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron. And King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they, notice this word, anointed David king over Israel. David is the thrice anointed king. This was a, th there was a private anointing. Remember that one before the father and brothers? That was some 20 years ago. Then there was a partial anointing some seven and a half years ago. That's when some of the tribes, one tribe, Judah, anointed David as king. After the, the private and partial, we now have the final anointing taking place. The rise of David is now completed. He now starts his reign. Verse 4. David was 30 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned for 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. Now, let's chart out these two verses while revealing where we are in the plot development of 2 Samuel. Take a look at this, this chart. In chapters 1 through 5, we've seen the political triumphs of David. He's made his way to the throne. He's ascended to the highest position in the land. King David. In chapters 6 and 7, we see the spiritual triumphs of David. He'll shepherd the people well and he'll bring them back to a proper worship of God. In chapters 8 through 10, we encounter David's military triumphs. And that's all before we reach the peak of 2 Samuel, the high point of the book, the center hub, and that is David's transgressions, his sin against Bathsheba and Uriah. That is when David takes a turn for the worse. That's when he begins to descend. He descends spiritually, politically, and even in mental determination. David is a different man after this point. He, become, he becomes weak in ways he was not before. Everything spells trouble for David. Trouble in his house, chapters 12 and 13. Trouble in his kingdom, chapter 14 to the end of the book. David's been in Hebron over one tribe, Judah, for seven and a half years. He is now anointed king, not only of Judah, but over the remaining 11 tribes. And he will hold that joint position for 33 years. In total, it looks like David became partial king when he was 30. And he will reign for a total of 40 years. Meaning he will be king from age 30 to age 70. The king is crowned, verses 1 through 5. The capital is chosen, verses 6 through 17. Verse 6. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, You will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off thinking David cannot come in here. David's time of waiting is now over. 
It is time for action. It's time for him to establish his capital city. His first act, locating and establishing a capital for the new United Kingdom. He chooses Jerusalem. Politically, this was a smart move for David. Jerusalem bordered Benjamin, Saul's tribe, and Judah, David's tribe. No one could accuse David of playing favorites. Jerusalem was centrally located, kind of like uh, D.C., Washington, D.C. Jerusalem was the border of, of the north and the south to unite the two. David sets up his Washington, D.C. The problem, <laughs> Jerusalem isn't for sale. People live there. The Jebusites. David grew up in Bethlehem near Jerusalem, so he was painfully aware of the Jebusites. Travelers avoided them. People stayed clear of them. They were vicious people who practiced infant sacrifices. Jerusalem didn't belong to Israel. Nor had it ever belonged to Israel. But it had been promised to Israel. It was a failure of faithfulness on the part of the Israelites, one of the 12 tribes, that they did not drive out the Jebusites previously. The Jebusites were descendants from the Canaanite people. And they were supposed to have, have already been driven out of God's promised land. God mentioned them by name commanding to drive this group of people out. Having the Jebusites control Jerusalem would be for us like Boko Haram controlling Nebraska. Or ISIS controlling the state of Arkansas. These Jebusites survived the Israelites for centuries. The Israelites couldn't kill them. Couldn't run them out. They've been there since the days of Joshua. Around 400 years. David will need to dislodge the stubborn people. David makes his march to the city with his band of warriors. They wait outside the gate. Then all of a sudden, they're hit with something in the face. It oozes down their cheek. It's wet and runny. Are these eggs? Are they throwing eggs at us? Have they lost their minds? Meanwhile, the Jebusites are on the city walls laughing and taunting the people of God. They are like children. Nanana boo boo, you can't get me. They are mocking David and his army. They have no fear. They are undaunted by the presence of David and his men. They have good reason to possess this confidence. Jerusalem was a well-fortified city. It had deep ravines on three sides forming an impregnable natural defense. Historically, looking back at this city, examining the geographic obstacles and the defenses put in place, this city was a military marvel. The Jebusites were so confident and arrogant that they said, we don't need our soldiers to defend the city. We will put our sick on the walls. The blind, the lame, the deaf. This is pre-battle verbal taunting. They think they are invincible. Even if the weakest defended, you would not be able to take this city. And, and this cocky wisecrack angered David. He wipes the verbal egg off his face and says to his men in verse 8, Whoever would strike the Jebusites, let them get up the water shaft 
to attack the lame and the blind who were hated by David's soul. And then the end of verse 8, the narrator comments here, therefore it is said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. David concedes, fine, if I'll adopt your self-designation. We will kill all the blind and the lame. David hates the blind and the lame. It's important for you to understand the trash talking that is going on. David isn't saying he has contempt for the physically challenged. The blind and the lame are being used figuratively. David is playing off the Jebusite's boastful claim. It became a proverbial saying because of what happens in this battle next. David hates the lame and the blind. It became a legend. David's response before he defeated the Jebusites became famous. Much like Churchill's, we will fight on the beaches speech. Or Reagan's, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down that wall. Is there any evidence later that David hated the blind and the lame? That, that he mistreated the handicapped? No. He cared for Mephibosheth. He doesn't despise the disabled. He cares for them. David is calling the Jebusite taunters the blind and the lame. David, with his military intelligence and God's wisdom, knows how to penetrate the impenetrable city. He knows how to impregnate the impregnable city. How's he going to do it? Will he scale the walls with grappling hooks? No. He will target the water system. Archaeological digs have revealed that the water system of Jerusalem, constructed by these Canaanite Jebusites, it was elaborate and sophisticated. These people were known for their engineering feats. The tunnels brought water from the Guyon Springs. And David's daring mission looks like this. He will send a special ops team to crawl through the water tunnels that went underground below the walls before making their way to the vertical shaft inside the walls of the city where they drew water. Once they climbed the steep well, the shaft, they'd be in the heart of the city. Once key members of the strike force made it inside, they would open the front gate and let the army in. The brevity of this account is a bit puzzling to me. It simply says, David took the city. I'd like to see the movie. Some more details. The lack of detail is surprising for such a monumental event. But the narrator wants, to emphasize, wants the emphasis to be placed on the fact that God's king brought God's people to Jerusalem, God's city. Verse 9, And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from the Milo or Milo inward. I want you to picture this. Jerusalem at this time was 11 acres in size. This church building sits on seven acres. So this is not a large city. It would not suffice for the buildings and populations needed for a capital. David embarks on a couple of building projects. He extended the city out to Milo. And he did this by bringing in dirt and rock to the hilltop and depositing them inside the massive cliffside retaining walls to create a larger, more level space. 
That was his first building project. Look at his second building project, verse 11. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees, also carpenters and masons, who built David a house. Most scholars believe increasing the landmass of Jerusalem, that took place immediately, and building David's house took place much later. The narrator is giving the events back to back to give you the big picture view. David builds his palace, his white house. And he does it with lumber and carpenters from Hiram. Hiram was the king of Tyre, the king of the Phoenicians. These people lived by the water. Evidently, David and Hiram formed an extensive treaty. Both Israel and the Phoenicians shared common interests, which led to this friendly cooperation. Israel lacked building materials. Phoenicia lacked agri agricultural products, so they began trading. This is foreign relations work. David had a small house in Hebron. Now he's getting a, a big one in Jerusalem. The Phoenicians cut down the cedar trees and floated them down the Mediterranean until they reached the spot to transport them over land to Jerusalem. And then we have another big picture verse. Once the house is completed, what did David do in that house? Verse 13. And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron and more sons and daughters were born to David. Then the author lists the names of all the sons born to David during that 33-year reign in Jerusalem. He's got at least 13 sons, comparing Scripture with Scripture, with parallel accounts. He'll end up with 19 or 20 sons, not including all of his daughters. But he's in his capital. The king is crowned. The capital is chosen. The arch enemy is combative. Verse 17, when the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, the Philistines went up to search for David. Let's stop here. When the Philistines heard. When the Philistines heard this good news of David reigning over the United Kingdom, they started positioning for war. David took the city and the Philistines immediately took up arms against him. They didn't like this good news. They didn't like this gospel news. Verse 18. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephraim. Who are the Philistines? The Philistines were a feisty bunch. They are mentioned as early as the days of Abraham. They were sea peoples who invaded Canaan, Canaan land, God's promised land for Israel. Many historians say they originated on the island of Crete. They built ships and sailed away because they desired more land than the island could supply. They were sea peoples, pirates of the Old Testament. I'm not saying they had a patch on their eye and a peg leg, but these were the Old Testament pirates. They eventually got tired of living on ships, so they beached off the Mediterranean Sea. They made aggressive incursions into Israel's territory. They were always hungry, hungry for the land. The Philistines were Israel's arch enemy. They're now at it again. This time, three miles away in a valley, calling Israel to come out and fight. They see the United Kingdom as a major threat to their power. So they launch the preemptive attack. The Philistines are the aggressors. Verse 19. And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, 
Go up. I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. In other words, we could replay this. Will you help me beat them, Lord? I don't want to enter, enter any fight where you're not on my side. I witness what happened to Saul. Again, David is sensitive to the will of the Lord, picking up this asking theme throughout First and Second Samuel. Verse 20, And David came to Belperazim, and David defeated them there, and he said, The Lord has spoken through my enemies. The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. Therefore, the name of that place is called Belperazim. Who won? Israel. How did they win? God burst through the enemies like the bursting of water. The valley was renamed after the battle. God exploded on David's enemies like a gush of water. So David renamed the place the master who explodes. Weeks later, maybe months, we discover a second military incursion. They came back for more. Verse 22, the Philistines, with their black eyes, came up yet again and spread out in the valley of Rephraim. And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, notice what the Lord says, you shall not go up. Go around to their rear and come against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of balsam trees, then rouse yourself. For then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. The answers which David received on these two occasions were different. The first time the Lord said, go up. The second time the Lord said, thou shalt not go up. Don't go head to head this time, David. Circle around to their six and then wait until you hear the rustling of the trees. Then you charge. The Hebrew resists botanic identification of this tree. The ESV calls it the balsam trees. The King Jimmy calls it the mulberry trees. The Hebrew calls it neither. Just the trees. It's going to be an undeniable sound. You will know, David, when you hear it. A strong gust of wind, and then the trees will dance. Don't run ahead. Wait until the wind blows. That's good advice. Never get ahead of God or lag behind him. The sound of wind going through the leaves may have camouflaged the sound of David's army advancing on the Philistines. The Lord is marching ahead of his people into battle. The Lord entered into combat. The Lord leading, David following. Verse 25, And David did as the Lord commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. <laughs> David Pushed them back 22 miles, meaning he drove them out of the valley. It was a decisive victory. He won the first victory by raw power, head to head. He won the second battle by superior military timing. He won both battles because of the hand of the Lord. Hiram appreciated that David had defeated his pirate neighbors. Both lived there by the sea. The text broken down into three movements. Now the text brought home with three applications. The text broken down into three movements. The text brought home with three applications. Before I do that, just for kicks and giggles, could I give you a bad application from this text? One that I just kept coming across. 
Some pastors took the part about David waiting to attack the Philistines until the rustling of the trees and applied it to decision-making. Now, we're teaching a seminar right now on decision-making. So you will not make the mistake that they make. These guys say, when making the decisions, you, you need to wait for the wind to blow. Listen for the rustling of the balsam trees. What does that even mean? That's crazy. That will have you looking for signs and interpreting your dreams. That's not the intention of the author in giving you this narrative. And this has been sadly common among Southern Baptist pastors. You can get real mystical real quick. I want to give you three legit applications. Application number one. God sent a better king that will bring us to a better capital. God sent a better king that will bring us to a better capital. Kyle, why, why is David being crowned shepherd king so important in God's unfolding story? I mean, there were kings before him, right? And kings after him. Yes, but David would be the motif. He would become the paradigm for the shepherd king. He will be the first shepherd king. But he will not be the last. Jesus on repeat preached that he was the greater David. He was the king our hearts have always longed for. He was the king of a kingdom, not of this world. Now let's give David credit. David did unite the 12 tribes. And that was a big deal. But there were more than 12 tribes at the time. There were Gentile tribes, Phoenician tribes, Philistine tribes. David points us to a better king who will not merely unite 12 tribes, but he will unite all tribes. This is a global king. 12 tribes are great, but all tribes are better. Some from every nation, every language, every people group. Revelation 7-9 speaks of Jesus bringing this tribe, this crowd together. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation and from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white clothes with palm branches in their hands. Jesus is a better king. He's a better king and he will bring us to a better capital. David took his people to, the, to their new capital, old Jerusalem. Jesus will take his people to a better capital, New Jerusalem. Revelation 21, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The sea was no more, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. God sent a better king that will bring us to a better capital. Application number two. You will either lay your sword down before this king or you will throw eggs at him. There is no middle ground. You will either lay your sword down before this king or you will throw eggs at him. There is no middle ground. These 11 tribes, you'll remember, fought against David for years. But something made them lay down their swords before him. Something made them beg him to be their king. Some of you 
have been fighting Christ your king. And you've been doing it for years. It's time to submit to his lordship. You come to him as your king. You say to Christ, I belong to you, both body and soul. The picture of salvation here is not, Jesus, I will let you in. I will invite you into my heart. No. The picture of salvation is this. I'm laying down my arms and I'm coming under your rulership. The 12 tribes submitted because they realized David was for them even when they were against him. And this will make you lay down your arms when you realize Christ was for you even when you were against him. The king will welcome you. He welcomes all those who come in repentance and faith. You lay down your arms after years of fighting when you realize the greater David is your Savior. Those of you that are non-Christians, Christians, you can take the next 60 seconds off. Those of you that are non-Christians, surrender your sword to King Jesus. Surrender your body and soul to Him. He accepts on no other terms. Some of you, you're like the Jebusites. You're throwing egg on his face. And you say, Kyle, little overreaction there. Um, I never speak poorly of Christ. If he's your king, fine. I just remain neutral. No, friend. There's no Switzerland with Christ. There is no neutrality. You surrender to him now or you pay the consequences when he storms the earth. There will be no refuge from him except the refuge found in him. Don't be like the Jebusites and underestimate God's king. Will you be like the 11 tribes and submit to him or be like the Jebusites and throw eggs at him? Application number three. We'll end on this one. God's promises are greater than the ache you feel. <laughs> I want to I wanna hug David in, in a manly way. The most manly, masculine, non-homosexual way possible. I, I want to hug David. I, I really do. All through 1 Samuel and up until this chapter started, David's life was miserable. He was the runt child in a home where his dad saw no leadership capabilities in him. He left the worst jobs to the, to the youngest son. God brings David to Saul's palace, and, and that was a big thing, and then it was going well for him for a while. Then Saul becomes insanely jealous and lies about him, starts a misinformation campaign, tries to kill him on multiple occasions. He then lives a life of a fugitive for 10 years. People lied about him and lied to him all the time. Come on over here, David. You need a hug, side hug. Life's, life's been hard. Life hasn't, hasn't been enjoyable for you, has it? You've, you've stayed faithful, but it hasn't been easy. What, what sustains you, David? 
Only one thing. The promise of God. The, the promise that, that he revealed to you that you would be king? Yes, God's promise to me was greater than the ache in me. Dear Christian, who told you that life would be roses and dandelions? Life is weeds and thorns. It's been that way since the garden. But as you're being scraped and cut, lied about and, and accused, remember this. God's promises are not stamped with an expiration date. It may seem like it's taking a long time. But God will get his king on his throne and bring his people to New Jerusalem. You can trust the promises of God because of the sources of those promises. From God. When you feel like folding, Christian, church, when you feel like folding, you will not. Because God's promises are greater than the ache you feel. God, we are yours by creation. You made us. We are yours by redemption. You bought us. We are yours by devotion. You've captured us. Dear Lord, we, we want you to hear us. We are Yours.